a new uh, section of scripture for us to walk through together, and that being over these uh, months, uh, being Genesis 1 through 12. And uh, so let's bow our heads together as we uh, enter into God's word together and, and uh, seek his uh, word to speak to us. Father, um, we are contained, we are um, um, contained in how much we can know, in, in where we can be, in what we can do and accomplish. We are contained in, in the time that we can live in, in the culture that we can be from. Uh, we're contained with, with um, how much uh, information we can gather. And we desire to know you, the one that has no containment, the one that has no boundaries, the one that is infinite in your being, in your essence, in all of your attributes. Lord, if if our mind is not blown by you, whenever we dig into who you are, we're not really seeing you. And Lord, we, we know from experience and we know from this world that we live in that we have a tendency to put boundaries around you. We have a tendency to put limits on you. Uh, we have a tendency to think that you are contained the way that we are, whether that be that you're contained by uh, who you have, um, have declared yourself to be or that you are contained by uh, our expectations of you or, or limited in some way in your power, in your knowledge, or in your presence. Lord, we just recognize these limitations that we have and how we tend to put them on you. And so, Lord, we're thankful so much that you chose to reveal yourself. You chose to show us a bit of who you are. And so, Lord, I pray that what you speak here this morning, that you would speak it clearly and that you would speak it uh, truthfully. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow me to speak your words. Fill me afresh, Lord God, uh, for this moment. I give you this time. I pray, Lord God, that those of my friends who are sitting here and listening would give you this time, that they would give you their minds and their hearts and their, their actions, that we, Father, would better reflect who you are on this earth. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking over these chapters of Genesis 1 through 12 at how, what and how God reveals himself as the God of the ages. The God of these epochs, the, these specific times that these chapters cover that in so many ways are incomprehensible to us. Can you imagine a world with no language or ethnic division? 
only one culture over the whole earth. That was life on this earth before what we know as the Tower of Babel. Can you imagine a world where everyone is evil? Everyone is living in rebellion against God with no moral concern whatsoever. That is our world before the flood. Can you imagine where a world where there's no self-serving, idolatrous ideas? Where every person is following God. Every person is living in perfect, intimate relationship with him and perfect, intimate relationship with each other. That's our world before sin, before what we know is the fall, the curse, where there's no family dysfunction, no relational disconnection, no guilt, no shame, no differences in judgment of what's right and wrong. The knowledge of good and evil was given by God before sin came into this world. No separation between God and man. No pain, no hardship in life. That's life before sin. And it's nearly impossible for us to comprehend those ages, those epochs of time. Can you imagine, I can't say a world, but can you imagine when there was no universe? Only God himself in his three persons of the Trinity. We can't. So we must be told of it. This could be called God of the Epochs, but that I would have been explaining epoch every Sunday. And it's a weird word. We don't use it a lot. But an epoch is an event or a time or an age marked by an event that begins a new period or development. So can you see how creation began a new epoch? Sin began a new epoch. The flood began a new epoch. The Tower of Babel began a new epoch. And by nature, it is nearly impossible for us living in the epoch that we live in to comprehend those epochs. Because ours was begun with something that changed everything. Genesis means beginnings. Beginnings of each new epoch, each new age, beginning with an event. And God is the God of all of these ages. In coming weeks, we'll see the beginning of the universe. In the first five days of creation, we'll see the beginning of mankind, created in man and woman. We'll see the beginning of sin, dysfunction, destruction, and death. We'll see the beginning of murder, mayhem, and mercy in the family of Adam and Eve. This will be the beginning of the earth as we know it, geologically, physically. 
begun with the flood, we'll see the beginning of people groups and different cultures, different ethnicities grouped together, different languages that we've begun with the event of the Tower of Babel. And we'll see the beginning of God's privileged people in his covenant with Abraham. And he was promised that every family of the earth was going to be blessed through him, was going to be blessed through the people that would come through him, through the seed, the offspring that would come through him, and that being blessed through Jesus Christ as a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of that promise, that covenant with him from God. And how it was continued through Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. That's Genesis 13 through 50, where it focuses in on this privileged people. But that epoch of that privileged people was begun there in Genesis 12. We'll see how from God's original sinless creation forward, each epoch begins with us, with mankind bringing dysfunction into God's original work. We'll see Genesis culminate. Well, we won't get there, but refer to Genesis culminating in Joseph's statement to his conniving, murdering, dysfunctional family at the end of the book of Genesis, where he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And and that summarizes Genesis with how with each of those ages that were initiated further from from the fall of man on, that were initiated further because of the way that we brought dysfunction into God's original creation and how he continued on with his rescue plan of how what we brought to it, we meant it for evil but God meant it for good. That it would bring us to a place where his son, who's it's described that God planned, this will blow your mind, to crucify him before the foundations of the world. That he would redeem a people for himself for all of eternity. That what we meant for evil, God meant for good. That's Genesis. And the summary of his work is the good that he brings and makes available through the sacrifice of his son on the cross for our sins so that we could trade the penalty of our sins, the responsibility for our sins, for the righteousness of Christ that he offers to us. And you see, all of history from that beginning creative moment is in a parabolic motion to where at the close of biblical history, the declaration goes out, the dwelling of God is with man again. And here's something interesting. We'll touch on this maybe a little bit next week. When God originally created, there was no need for a son. It was created on day four. God had already said, let there be light. 
And where God will bring biblical history is where it will say there will be no need for sun or moon. For God's glory will be their light. God is bringing all of history back to a place where it is about him and he has a redeemed people to enjoy him forever. We're looking this morning at mostly four simple words. In the beginning, God. This week we look at an age in which there was no age There was no time. There was no created universe. Nothing but God. And understanding this epoch means to have a better understanding of the reason, the meaning, the purpose of all of the future epochs, of life itself, of the moment we live in now and everything from that point forward. I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you ever buy a GPS, you know, we use our phones for everything now. But, but I, I noticed a couple times when I had to buy a GPS, one of the times it got stolen. But uh, you get it out of the box and you turn it on. Anybody ever notice this? It's, it's synchronized with the satellites of, I guess, the place where it was made. You know, it's always interesting to turn it on. Okay, where did you come from? It's in sync with where it came from. Understand that all we know was originally synced with God as the beginning of everything. This is the the place where we are to begin being in sync with the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the reason for everything's existence that we know is that at some point, you can't say in time, some point in eternity, there was only God in his three persons. And he is the purpose for everything. I'm not overstating this. And what I want you to take away from here this morning Out of love for you, I want you to live in sync with the God-centered universe. Live in sync with the God-centered universe. Some of you guys that work at Donnelly's or, or places like that, you know what happens when these books are flying through these machines. Maybe, you know, they're being bound or they're being uh, printed or they're being whatever, and something goes out of sync. Any smallest thing goes out of sync in that machine, and it's stop the presses, literally. It's break time. It's we're behind. The smallest thing goes out of sync in that process, and it's not pretty. I uh, had a... Uh, PC, and I had a Samsung phone. And when I first got that Samsung phone, I was amazed at how my texts could come up on my computer. I was amazed at how I could, if I was somewhere where I didn't have Wi-Fi, I could pull up my phone on the computer, and I could email from there and things like that. Well, you know what happened? My computer got an update. And all of a sudden, I started getting things. Your Samsung phone cannot sync with your computer. 
Then my phone got, you know, then it kind of came together again. Then my phone got an update. Then my computer got an update. Then my phone. I had about three weeks of this bliss of this phone and this computer working together, and then they were out of sync. That is how God's creation lives with him. We were meant to be in sync with this fact that he is the purpose and the reason for everything. Living in sync with God means living according to reality. And the ultimate reality is that before anything else existed, God exists. And you have to use strange tenses of time like that when you're talking about God and time. In the beginning, we're told, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the ultimate reality. Strip everything else away, and this is the reality. In the beginning, God created. Just to give you, you know, here's an exercise in futility, but here's a definition of God for you. God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The only reason why that's not an exercise in futility is because those truths come from what God has said about himself. John 24, 24, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This means that he is not bound to a physical form. This doesn't mean him, he is no less a person, meaning having personality, meaning he is a rational being with self-awareness, an individual being with a mind, with emotions, and with a will. That's the definition of a person, someone having personality, not a people, not a human, but a being with personality. The term God here, when it says in the beginning, God is the term Elohim. It is a plural form of the general name for God. And it, in its plural form, is used 26 times in chapter 1 and 39 times in the first two chapters of the Bible. It's speaking of God's triune, trinitarian nature, meaning three persons in one. It's a plural subject with a singular verb or a singular object. It's kind of like asking the question, who creates it? And they said, they creates it. They creates it. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 say over and over again. And they creates So how is Genesis 1-1 intended to teach us to live in sync with the God of the universe? And first of all, we should, from this truth, yield to the fact that life is about God. Life is about God. When Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, the definition here is a starting point of a specific duration. The beginning of time the beginning of all that we know. 
you could say is the beginning. This statement here in Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of all beginnings. That's why, the, again, why the book of Genesis is titled Beginnings. It is the beginning of anything that has ever begun. And as we'll see here, we'll say, well, where, what about God? He never begun. Again, when you're talking about God, it throws all tense of verb off. That's my excuse. Sorry, baseball fans, this is not talking about the big inning, you know, the, when, when uh, you know, the first pitch was thrown. Imagine signing up for a class. Okay? And this is kind of an answer to the question of what, what, why are we making such a big deal out of four words? Imagine signing up for a class and the title of the class is Life or The Universe or Existence. In a lot of ways, by, by saying less, it's, it's open. It's saying so much. And that's what we find in these four words. In the beginning, God. Ultimately, God's word is his message about himself. And where the Bible does not, what, what the Bible does not try to do is prove God. Nowhere does the Bible try to prove God. And we'll look at the fact that his creation, he tells us, is enough to prove him. And even in saying that, he's saying, you should know. Not even you should know. He's saying, oh, you do know. You do know. The opening of God's word assumes who he is. Assumes we know. The Bible is God-centered, not man-centered. It doesn't open up saying, what do they need to hear in order to believe in me? The God-centered nature of the Bible communicates God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But understand that just as I said, we have interacted with God's original creation in a way that opens up new epochs, new ages. We live in an age where man's understanding is that it's not that God is sovereign and man is responsible. It's that man is sovereign and God is responsible to man. The idea that God must prove that he exists is, means that he has a responsibility to us. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. The idea that God must prove himself according to how each person wants to interpret his message is insane. And I use that term because we define someone as being insane when they don't function according to reality. The reality simply is, in the beginning, God. God is beyond our self-centered nature and fickle desires. Our fickle desires are recognized by, by a song's chorus. 
We hate the rain when it fills up our shoes, but how we love when it washes our cars. We love to love when it fills up the room, but when it leaves, we're cursing the stars. Similarly, the psalmist cries out, why do the wicked people prosper? And we ask, why would God let bad things happen to anyone except someone that's as bad as Hitler? God has no responsibility to meeting our fickle desires for who he should be. That is clear from the very beginning of all beginnings. Let's just touch on this a little bit here, okay? God is eternal. You can define eternal by this. God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his being, and he sees all time equally, vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. I'm going to blow through these things, but I have pieces of paper here in the back here if, if you'd like to kind of dig into these a little bit on the back table. We're told in Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Eternal past to eternal uh, future. We're told in verse 4 of Psalm 90, the same psalm, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. In other words, God recalls thousand years ago as if it were just yesterday because he still exists in it or as Wayne Grudem says all of past history is viewed by God with great clarity and vividness all of time since the creation is to God as if it just happened and it will always remain just as clear in his consciousness throughout millions of years for of eternity future You've probably heard before 2 Peter 3.8 as some sort of justification that God used time to create the universe where it says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This is not describing the fact that time passes more quickly for God than for us. He's outside of time, yet he works in time. God lives within the moment of a thousand years the way that we live in a single day, in a single second. And your single day is as significant to God as a thousand years of time. Yet some have twisted the truth of this verse to mean that God uses thousands of years to create the world. Instead, he's saying that he needs no time at all to do what we can't comprehend taking millions of years to do. Oftentimes, talk of creation breeds to the child's question, but who made God? But who made God? God in his very essence is independent. This means he is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. A definition would be God does not need us 
or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. In Acts 17, uh, when Paul is speaking to the men of Athens, he said, the God who made the world and everything be in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the only being that is self-existent. He does not owe his existence to anyone or anything. He is the only non-created being in existence. And Moses was told to take a message to God's people that God would set them free from Egypt. And, and God says, when Moses says, who do I say sent me? He says, tell them I am has sent you. I, I have always been. I will always be. I simply am. I am the ultimate truth of life. In quoting Wayne Grudem, he says, God exists by virtue of his very nature and that he was never created, never came into being. He always was. God's existence and character are determined by himself alone and are not dependent on anyone or anything else. And you may recall Jesus, the son of God, God the son ticked off the Jewish leaders by claiming that he had authority even over their father Abraham. And he told them, before Abraham was, I am. I am. This is because God has always existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is triune. He is a trinity is our word for it. Genesis 1-1 points to God's triune nature because God is eternally self-sufficient. Not just in the fact that it uses a pl the plural term God. Elohim. But part of his eternal self-sufficiency is seen in the fact that he has always been in community with himself. The reason why we long for community is because we were made in the image of God, as we'll talk about in a couple weeks. And we'll soon read in the following verses that where God says, let us make man in our image. We'll see that the Holy Spirit participates in creation, hovering over the waters of the deep. You can read in John 1, 1 through 3, speaking of Jesus as the word, God's ultimate message to humanity that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And Jesus talks to his father in John 17, 5, saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I told Kelly this past week, preparing this sermon, I feel like I'm trying to bring a cup of water from a fire hydrant. You can probably see why. 
Well, if I were to bring a cup of water from the ocean, is it, um, is it truly part of the ocean? Absolutely. But it's no comparison to the ocean. We've looked at some of God's attributes to which these four simple words point and assume. But it goes without saying that there is so much more that can be said. You know, these are, this is um, seven pages about God's independence, God's eternality, the Trinity, um, taken from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and J.I. Uh, Packer's um, Concise Theology. There's so much more than even God has told us. That the little spoonfuls that he's provided us about who he is in being eternal. That's even contained in all of his word. But imagine a tour guide bringing a, 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 a group of people from the Midwest that have never seen the ocean. And they get off the bus and he says, behold the ocean. And one of the people on the tour says, ah, I was expecting something more. Is it any less grand? Is it any less ginormous? Is it any less the ocean because of that person's opinion about it? No. And we must be careful. God doesn't owe us an explanation about himself. A person being unimpressed does not mean that he is any less God. There's a man-centered misunderstanding of God's eternal, independent, triune persons, and that is that God needed companionship. And so he made man. Or that God can be manipulated by our works because he needs our worship. I mean, there's so few of us that follow him. Certainly he appreciates me for me. We'll get into what he appreciates about us being made in his image, being redeemed by his son. The fact is, is God chose to glorify himself by adding to his company eternally adopted sons and daughters by his grace and understanding him should give you a greater grasp of his mind-blowing grace that we would be through Christ welcomed into his presence for all of eternity I hope you are I hope you have trusted his one and only way truth and life Evidenced by the fact that you have a relationship with him, with his Holy Spirit indwelling you. This leads us to the fact that you must yield to the fact that life flows from God. And this is obviously going to be more laid out next week as we look at the five first days of creation when God created the heavens and the earth. But we're told in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all of the hosts 
Hebrews 11.3 tells us, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, everything that we know, was not made out of things that are visible. But they flowed out of his command. They flowed out of who he is. And speaking of Jesus, Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, through Jesus, and for him, for Jesus. Life flows from God. Meaning, purpose, reason for life flows from God. We were generated from God himself and I love the theological term for salvation that we are regenerated. Connected again with purpose, meaning, reason for existence. I was trying to understand um, an image, an object that would help us to understand how life flows from God. And I thought maybe a sphere, but God is more than just the core of all of life. I thought maybe a pyramid, but God is more than just the foundation of all of life. Both of those ideas tend toward our tendency to put him in a compartment This is my God compartment. These are like where the eternal things go. These are like the things that I can't handle, so I let him handle those things. Everything else that I can handle, I handle. That's our tendency to think important things flow from God. No, life flows from God. So I thought of a cone stood up on its tip. Imagine life as being like trying to climb this cone. The cone represents God. It's much easier to enter through the tip of the cone and climb it than it is would be to climb on the outside of the cone. And how easy it would be to fall from climbing on the outside of this cone. There's one starting point. It's easier to enter into that starting point and to fall from it and to continue climbing it, you have to come back to that same starting point. The Bible doesn't call a person who doesn't believe in God an atheist. Atheist meaning theist for God, a meaning no, so they believe there's no God. The Bible doesn't call a person that doesn't believe in God an atheist. The Bible calls a person that doesn't believe in God a fool. It says a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Everything originates from God, like the tip of that cone. To move forward in life with meaning, with purpose, is to, is to enter into it from the tip of that idea, God exists. Life is meant to be lived within his plan, within his purpose, enter into a relationship with him through the gospel, with his explanation of who he is. That would be like trying to climb that cone from the inside. 
to just hold on to this theistic idea, but to say, but I'm going to kind of stay open to all whatever man has in his mind. That's like trying to climb that cone from the outside. But when a person comes to the place where they fall off that cone and they decide God doesn't exist, to move forward in life with purpose and reason that matters for eternity, and one day, whatever 80 years you spend on this life is not going to matter other than what was lived in, in a way that matters for eternity. And to, to engage with that purpose, again, is to come back to that original place at the tip of that cone. God exists. I will no longer be a fool. This morning, I, I was so glad that I remembered something. See, I, I synced my computer, like, on Friday or Saturday, and I synced my phone or not, it, because an update came out. Okay, so I, I synced my MacBook to the update. I synced my iPhone to the update. And this morning, I was like, oh, man, I better sync my iPad. Because I've had that before. I've had that come here and be like, why can't I pull up my notes? Remember, I, the iPad hasn't been synced to the new update that came out. Because I love this in sync nature of my MacBook and my iPhone and my iPad. Pick it up, anything from one of them. Okay, I'm, I'm going too far into that, sorry. Does it make sense that when we know Christ is our Savior, that really what we're called to do when we grow is to, to get in sync? Does it make sense that that God's description of growing in Christ is to move forward to that horizon fact that we are to called to love God with all of our mind, with all of our heart, with all of our strength. See, growing in Christ is to get in sync with the purpose of the universe. To grow in Christ is to get in sync with our hearts desiring what is important to the universe. As the psalmist says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When you spend time in God's word on a regular basis, seeking out who God is, seeking out how he desires for you to live, it's like you're getting one of those updates to get in sync with the purpose of all of life. Let's bow our heads. Father God, I feel like we've just taken a bite out of an infinite truth. But Lord, I pray that you would convict us if our attitude is just kind of throwing our hands up and saying, well, who can really understand God? because you have said so much about yourself in your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would forgive us for getting out of sync with who you are and, and clinging to man-centered ideas that somehow you need us or somehow we can manipulate you or somehow you're about us. Lord God, allow us to be in sync with you. I pray that you'd bring my friends here to your word this week to be reminded that all of life is about you. And you've given us our hearts and our minds and our strength and our souls to love you with. 
And that's when life has purpose. Thank you so much for walking with us that what we have done by evil, you mean for good. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.